This is Christina Laurie continuing CFRC's three-part series on food insecurity in Kingston. In our last segment, we spoke with multiple experts, including Tracy McDonough, public health dietitian at KFLNA Public Health, Dr. Elaine Power of the Queen's School of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, and former city councilor, advocate, and healthcare expert, Dr. Mary Rita Holland, to outline what exactly qualifies as food insecurity, the current landscape in Kingston, and more. In the second part of this series, we sat down with some of the organizations in Kingston dedicated to meeting the immediate needs of people struggling with food insecurity in our community. With this context in place, we now ask how we ought to address this issue on a larger scale. The resounding message is clear. Food banks are overwhelmed and not a permanent solution. So what are some actions we can take to seek out more permanent solutions to food insecurity in Kingston? Today, we revisit our discussions with Tracy McDonough, Dr. Elaine Power, and Dr. Mary Rita Holland to begin exploring solutions. To start off, here's what Tracy McDonough had to say. So <clears throat> for individuals um, who might be interested in this information or this topic, um, we are encouraging those individuals to learn more about why food insecurity is a serious public health problem um, and why income solutions are needed to address this issue. We know that um, food charity and community food programs can't solve poverty, which is the root cause of food insecurity. So income responses are needed to address and resolve food insecurity. So income responses are typically government policies that improve income, secur income security at a systemic level through income transfers, employment policies, pensions, tax exemptions or credits, and social assistance programs. So we encourage those who are interested in this topic to be advocating for these income-based solutions um, and also bringing up the topic of food insecurity with your peers at your dinner table at social gatherings and sharing our local food costing findings. In our report, we do have recommendations um, for uh, at the individual level, for organizations, municipal, provincial, and federal government levels. So there's many, many um, depending on where you are um, in terms of uh, level of government, whether you're at just the community level, we have recommendations for you for um, moving us towards having more income-based responses to food insecurity because our community food programs just, they're meeting an immediate need um, uh, for people who can't afford to buy healthy food, but this is not a long-term dignity-based um, solution at all. What sorts of short-term and long-term solutions do you see as promising? Well, you know, CERB gave us a really nice example of something that could be put in place really quickly. I mean, we, mm -hmm. CERB was, I mean, it wasn't without problems and without design flaws, but the fact that it was put in place so quickly and relatively easily. I mean, I know that the Auditor General has said that, you know, there were people who got it who shouldn't have gotten it but uh if we had i mean i <laughs> you could argue with that i mean it, by design serb left out the poorest and the most marginalized people in the country they it was only available to people who had earned income in the previous year of at least five thousand dollars so it excluded people on social assistance automatically um, I think if we had had a basic income in place before the pandemic hit, uh, we wouldn't have seen those um, problems with with that we saw with CERB. But the fact that CERB did roll out and it rolled out so quickly and, you know, we saw a decrease in poverty and we saw, um, you know, the economy stayed afloat. It really provides 
in some ways, uh, not the perfect model, but a really nice example of what we could do if we really wanted to. So uh, as I said in the beginning, I, I've become a fan of basic income, an unconditional basic income, meaning that anybody who meets the income criteria would would be eligible for it, just like Medicare, that mm -hmm. if, if you have an illness or you've broken your leg, you, you get to use your healthcare system without, you know, a, an extra charge. Um, so that could be that. I mean, there's lots of things that would need to be worked out in terms of implementing a basic income, but it could be rolled out pretty quickly. Um, or and honestly, the other thing that could happen really quickly is, for people on social assistance is those rates could be increased. Um, you know, the rate of social assistance of Ontario Works and ODSP, people have been calling for it to be doubled. Um, and even if on Ontario Works were doubled, it would still be well below the poverty line. I think right now it's less than 40% of the poverty line. So it's really what we call legislated poverty. It's keeping people trapped in really deep uh, poverty, very unhealthy. And once you get stuck in that kind of deep poverty, it gets really hard to climb out. Um, you know the the so you know the so-called rationale for that is that it encourages people to look for work. Well, anybody who's on Ontario Works, um, if they're not if they don't have a disability when they they start, they will very quickly because of the impact of malnutrition on brain function and the kind of stress of living in that kind of poverty. So. Um, you know, the disability might not be certified like it is on ODSP, but I would bet that almost 100% of people on Ontario Works have some kind of um, disability. Mm -hmm. Things that could happen next month are, you know, Ontario Works and ODSP could be increased to meet the cost of living. Um, the minimum wage could be increased to meet, uh, you know, a living wage standard. And I, I think we need a basic income. Um, I, I don't, I'm not feeling terribly op optimistic about it right now, but um, you know, th that would help fill in the gaps, especially for people who are, wor who are working maybe multiple part-time jobs or people with disabilities who want to work, but uh, on, on, you know, there's so many rules on ODSP that, keep them from working, um, including, you know, money being clawed back or, you know, just um, people, disability often kind of comes and goes. It's, you can, maybe you can work sometimes and maybe you can't work other times. So a basic income could provide an income floor for everybody that wouldn't be stigmatized. And you know, there's lots of evidence to show that it would be good for the economy. It would stimulate entrepreneurial activity, it would cut healthcare costs. Um, if there's, there's lots of arguments for it. Um, so anyway, I think that answered your question. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the truth too is that the Ontario government, um, ha they have not spent the budget that they allocated for mm -hmm. social assistance in the last, I think the last few years, they have like, they actually have money that they could be putting into um, the social assistance program so it's a it's appalling to me the, the kind of deep mm -hmm. poverty that we keep people in that make it just really makes it impossible to imagine for people to imagine how they could ever climb out. Dr. Power also provided some additional resources to look into. 
my my co-author would kill me if if I didn't also say you know I've written a book with Jamie Swift um, on called the case for basic income mm -hmm. that um, uh, we basically use the stories of people who participated in the Ontario basic income pilot to talk about the good things that basic income could do so you know and you know you also asked about um, community health. Uh, and how basic income or how poverty and basic in and on the other side, the basic income affects community health. You know, one of the things we found um, what, because uh, we were talking to people in Lindsay, Ontario, which was one of the sites for the Ontario basic income pilot. And there were probably most of the people in Lindsay who were living below the poverty line were eligible for the basic income pilot. So you know, I think the um, stores really noticed a difference because people people who are living in poverty, they're not putting money in offshore bank accounts or, you know, going to Florida <laughs> to spend their money there. They spend it locally. You know, they buy groceries and they pay rent and um, they buy things for their kids. Um, one of the things that was unexpected in Lindsay, uh, because many people who were living in uh, rent gear income housing got the basic income so their income their annual income was increased and then their rent also increased to meet the you know the, the increased income and so the housing corporation the public ended up with a surplus of about three hundred thousand dollars that they weren't counting on because of the basic income pilot so then they could you know, um, repairs and upgrades to public. Um, you know, we're, there's also some evidence, you know, things that things like crime could be um, mm -hmm. increased. That, you know, when the pandemic, Justin Trudeau and other politicians were talking about, you know, we're, we're all in this together, turn out to be true. But I think, you know, we're at a moment in, in the world where there's a lot of division and a lot of polarity and um, people feeling left behind basic income I think could could help reverse that like to give people a sense that of hope <laughs> of hopefulness of, um, of of belonging again and so I think the impacts on community health could be really interesting in the longer term the problem with one of the problems with basic, basic income is that the effects will take a little while to roll out <laughs> so they're not in the electoral cycle but i think you know the impact on the community could be i think really interesting to to research dr holland also proposed how we should start exploring solutions absolutely and speaking both short-term and long-term and um coming from your perspective as someone who's worked in government for a long time um, what can people in the city of Kingston do as political agents to affect change in the community in addition to donating to local organizations where they can? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, this is in part, you know, based on my experience, but also based on my, my research and academic work um, and political involvement at various, various levels. The, the structural changes are absolutely necessary. We, we're not going to see any solutions that are, um, meaningful with a continuation of 
relying on the municipal tax base for affordable housing, for example, or relying on food charities and, and community and social programs that are nonprofit based, all of them doing incredible work. But their funding and operations is often contingent on provincial funding year over year. And and so and also just never enough to address the need. So, mm-hmm. so what needs to change and what people really need to get in, get involved in and interested in is uh, calling for um, significant investment uh, in income security, whether that's basic income or um, very, very, um, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> major, a major uh, overhaul of the social programs that are available at the moment, uh, many of which are difficult to to access. People on OW, for example, uh, are often looking to be on ODSP. Many of them are not able to work. And the whole system is based on the assumption that individuals should be working and should be in the labor market and providing for themselves and their families that way. And that just simply doesn't work. We have many people in the community who are not able to do that. And so uh, the eligibility criteria for ODSP is too restrictive. That's just one example. Um, And most people are desperate to get on at ODSP because they recognize they're not going to be able to survive on $720 a month if you're a single adult. So they they need to at least be able to get um, a few hundred dollars a month more uh, as a starting point. And then, you know, we've seen through the pandemic, $2,000 a month was made available to individuals um, who weren't able to work. And then yet we have ODSP rates that are um, yeah, anywhere between 1200, you know, but based on your family size, that kind of thing. So there's a significant level of, uh, I would argue, discrimination uh, Mm -hmm. inherent in our system. And it is, as many people have said before me, (laughs) it's a form of legislative poverty. So people, my number one focus would be if I was someone in the community who wanted to make a difference to to join the cause, some of the groups that are working towards these efforts to bring attention to the the issues that are structural and need um, provincial and federal investment like basic income groups or any non Uh, anti-poverty groups. In addition to this information, our experts also provided us with some additional resources for those looking to get more acquainted with this topic. Be sure to visit the KFLNA public health website and the websites and social media of our local supporting organizations. Thank you for tuning into this three-part series on food insecurity in Kingston here on CFRC 11.9 FM. If you'd like to revisit this series or reference the resources and additional materials provided regarding food insecurity in Kingston, be sure to head to podcast.cfrc.ca.
Once again, echoing what McDonough and Dr. Power had to say, 